History with Teresa and Angie, where we talk about the lesser known stories and the stuff that's going to make you go, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I'm Angie. I'm Teresa. Here we go. So, Angie, how have you been? What are you up to today? Um, Like, there's a torrential downpour in my pool right now, and it's... Wait, there's a... Okay, hold on. Isn't the pool the best place for a downpour? Like, I... What? Yes, except for... So, like, that's all you can hear outside right now is, like, the rainwater hitting the pool, which is really lovely, but every time you hear it, you you think your house is going to float away. Okay. All right. I mean, we have rain here, but it's just... Portland so you know as advertised yeah we don't so we don't know what rain is where we live it's like um it's a really big deal you know but now we're in that season where that's all we're going to get and it's the best ever until you forget about it and it wakes you up okay I mean all right I, I you know yeah I'm jealous of the amount of rain that you get we get wildfires, though, so there's that. You you get wildfires, but then I also have a husband who I'm like, okay, but you, you've got to go finish your yard work chores. You know, you've got things that you need to do. But it's raining, and it's going to rain tomorrow, too. So um, what, what day are you going to do it? Because, you know, your choices and rain. So mm. here we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know, and things get done. It's just he's a Californian at heart, and so these are things. Yeah. It's not going to rain tomorrow. It's going to be fine. I'll do it tomorrow. I mean, that's like the thing you you tell yourself, right? You know, like, oh, you know, I will be less busy tomorrow. I can tackle this. As soon as I get through blank, you know, I can do it. Mm. But the, the truth is, like, this is status quo. You know, you are going to be yep. just as busy next week. I'm going to get rain next week. Like, these are things. And it's And it's life. Like, you think, like, for me, I always think I'm going to be able to accomplish so many things tomorrow. And then tomorrow rolls around and I forgot about the things I didn't do yesterday and realized tomorrow is not tomorrow's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and like it's that frame, it's that knowing that frame of thought that like always makes me so anxious. And I'm like, I've got to get everything done today. If it's not done today, it's going to you, you can't don't put it off till tomorrow. And it's yes. just like I am that little squirrel on Ice Age. Just trying to yeah. pack your nuts in the in the ice. Just frantically trying to do all the things. Yeah. I feel that in my very soul. <laughs> I could, I'd, I'd hug you right now if I could. I know we're just oh. far away. Oh, air hug! <laughs> I'm down for that. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I'm so excited about what you have to tell me. Like, I want to know if it's the same thing that I have to tell you. <laughs> I, I uh, maybe because this was one of those things when we first started hanging out and like chatting and sending memes back and forth, where I did send you a meme about this. <gasps> oh, I'm so excited. So, you know, in theory, you could have. And when I was thinking about stories that I wanted to really dive in and learn more about, I kept thinking back to this one and I was like, I got to do it. But now I'm like, I am a tinge nervous. Um, So with that, I guess I'm going to dive in. Um, I'm going to tell you about the African samurai. Yes. (laughs) I'm so excited. Okay. Okay. I'm so so excited to learn about the African samurai. I know like so little. Uh, yeah, probably just what was in that one like meme that I sent you and you were just like, holy cow. OK, um, yeah. my sources are an article in Time magazine, uh, Britannica.com. I did re-binge Age of, the, Age of Samurai, the Netflix, the Netflix docuseries. And the Black Samurai is not in there, but I had to rewatch mm-hmm. it because Hubs and I like got into a disagreement about whether or not he was there. And I was like, I watched this mostly without you. So you are not a reliable source of information here. <laughs> but because he's like, no, it was there. I was like, okay, but if he's only seen like a third of the series and he's saying that, then I might be wrong. And so I had to rewatch it and be like, ah, he's not. Um, I then also found an article on the African history and samurai is words dot store. But yeah, so it, <laughs> it sounds real suspect, but that was for like a later warlord and, you know, kind of learning more about him. Um, Okay, but before I really start with the Black Samurai, I kind of have to dive in and kind of immerse you in what is happening in feudal Japan in the mid-1550, or in 1550, because I I really doubt that you or I had a firm understanding of what this is before I'm about to, you know, info dump on you. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there at the time, so, you know. I mean, priorities, right? Yeah. Um, So in... 
1534, the, the, one of the main characters. So I'm telling you a story about a, a side character of history, really. And so I kind of have to introduce the main characters in most of the history books so that I can get to this side character. Um, so 1534, there's a, a dude named Oda Nobunaga and Nobunaga first name, and he's from the Oda clan, you know, some Oda lineage. So that is, that is who he is. Um, he was born to a, a minor feudal Lord in this obscure province. And he, his dad only controlled half of the province. Okay. So minor, minor, minor character. Um, in 1551, Oda Nobuhide dies and he has named his successor as Nobunaga. Now, Nobunaga, he's known for a couple of things, all positive, his temper and his disdain for tradition. I love these things. Right? Like his family viewed he was a fool. Like, so they were, they were kind of like hesitant to accept him as, as leader, um, during his dad's funeral, you know, just to highlight his disdain for tradition, he does a couple of things like kind of, uh, you know, trounce all over the funeral rites for his dad. So, I mean, <laughs> he's off to a, a great start. Um, he's it, winning friends is what you're saying. He's, he's making friends. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so much so that his mom earmarked him to be assassinated by his brother. Oh, well, you know, these are things. This is going to make for an awkward Thanksgiving. But um, yeah, yeah, uh, he ends up overpowering his brother killing him and you know it's just like ugh. okay but think about it like a lot of the historical accounts that i found like made some interesting comparisons they compared nobunaga to alexander the great okay okay um and you know so just kind of hold all this in your in your brain but before he really takes off and earns that mantle he wants to start to make a name for himself and he realizes he needs an army to start conquering these lands and as one does right and so it was traditional there as as you know in many other lands to you know, draft peasants right right um so in japan they were called the ashigaru and the ashigaru were you know just script conscripted peasants and traditionally they were basically just poor people with sharp sticks um okay uh, so untrained, poor people with sharp sticks. Yeah. Okay. Nobunaga, he decides he's actually going to give them weapons and train them how to fight. So he's actually like building a legit army. And because he's investing in his employees, using corporate lingo, um, <laughs> they end up developing such a strong loyalty to him, his cause, what he's doing, like all of that. Right? Weird when you get fed how that works you know, fed and trained, right? You know, we're, exactly, yeah. you're no longer trying to eke out a, a living with subsistence farming. Now you're, you're also like, Hey, you get this other shiny stick or, you know, whatever weapons they were using. Um, they weren't necessarily given all sorts, but they did seem to have a variety that they were trained on. So That's as, cool. as this happens, like Nobunaga starts to slowly, you know, ca capture more and more lands nearby. And he starts to really build like this bigger following. So fast forward 28 years later, okay, it is now Japan 1579. And he went from controlling half of a province in South Central Japan to all of Central Japan. Like he's got nice. most of it. He's, he's, you know, he's, Nobunaga is the reason Japan is unified. You know, like he mm -hmm. really jumpstarted that whole process. Um, so now, you know, there is an Italian Jesuit priest just for a weird mashup. Bra's name is Alessandro, I'm going to butcher this last part, Villigiano. But okay. he arrives in Japan, he came from India, and he brought with him his personal valet or butler, right? As you do. Now, dude is a Japanese native. And from here on out, guys called Yasuke. Um, I couldn't find his birth name. And all I really know about him is from the Japanese records. Okay. So we have a very small window of who this human was. Um, now, priests, as you can imagine, weren't allowed to have bodyguards. So they typically hired servants who just so happened to be highly skilled in weapons. As one does. I mean, just coincidence, right? <laughs> so Yasuke was, there's deba debate on whether or not Yasuke was a slave or born free. Um, one guy named Thomas Lockley, he co-authored 
a book called The African Samurai, The True Story of Yasuke, a legendary black warrior in feudal Japan. He believes that at the time of all of this, that Yasuke was a free person. Um, and I'll, like he, he believes that Yasuke likely was enslaved as a child and taken to Africa or from Africa to India. Um, but again, this is like mid 1500s. There's not a, a ton of sources, right? Um, he thinks no immigration that immigration documentation, do you mean? Right. I mean, think about all the modern forensics that are lost in floods and fires or whatever, you know, and multiply yeah. that across millennia. 500 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's like, he thinks that this guy could have started out as a, like a military slave or an indentured soldier and then mm -hmm. probably got his freedom before meeting Valignano. Um, but he, it's also possible that he left Africa as a mercenary, you know, that he wasn't a child when he left Africa and he just came armed and armed and ready. But we don't know um, when they look at the records that we do have and they see like. Where's those fun notes? I have them in here. Like I took so many notes just to try to talk coherently about this. They think he could be from Mozambique, Ethiopia or South Sudan, South Sudan. Um, and they're looking at any evidence connected to his name, his physical appearance, or mm -hmm. like the trade relationships among Japan, Europe, Africa. So that's that's kind of where we're going from. But a lot we okay. really don't know. Um, so he's over there. He's hanging out as the the you know the personal valet of this priest. And in 1581. Alignano decides that he wants to leave. And so for him to leave, for whatever reason, he felt compelled to go meet up with Nobunaga to ask permission to leave the country. That makes sense. You know, you kind of want the blessing of the guy with all the power. Um, yeah. And when he does, he brings his personal valet along, as one does. Now, imagine you're a warlord. You stand... Easy to imagine. <laughs> I mean, you are a mom with an iron fist of boys, so I get it. Indeed. Um, you see a, a guy, black guy, who stands literally a foot over you, and you've never this seen a black guy I'm before. I'm only five two. <laughs> so, okay, you're the height. You're the height of Nobunaka, roughly. Yeah. Okay. Now you've never seen a guy six two and black. Never seen a black guy ever, let alone somebody that tall. Nobunaga apparently freaks out and is just like, what? He reportedly, this is awful. Like I read this and I was like clutching my pearls. He reportedly <laughs> has Yasuke stripped and scrubbed thinking that, you know, Yasuke's skin is dirty. Like what did you painted in mud? Like we have to get it off. Like that's what he's thinking. He's just, he didn't realize that there were people with extra melanin in their skin, and this was fascinating to him, right? I mean, he's not wrong. Agreed. Like, he, he's, he's wrong to strip him and scrub him, but I would be fascinated as well. Well, and that's what happens when you have more power than sense. But these are things. <laughs> that's true. So they're assumed, like historians like are assuming, you know, when Yasuke has met Nobunaga that somehow or another Yasuke knew Japanese or at least well enough to have conversations with Nobunaga because there's reports that show that he had conversations and like actually communicated with him. Um, okay. And during that, that meeting, it says that, you know, he, Yasuke quickly proved his skills as a fighter and a soldier. And so Nobunaga gives Yasuke this Japanese name. Uh, he accepts him into his service. He's like, from now on, you work for me. You're going to, you know, you can be one of mine. I'm going to get you a house. Uh, we're going to eat together regularly. And eating with, you know, a, a daimyo was very reserved. Like, you only did that with your most trusted generals and family, right? So for, for Yasuke just to be instantly welcomed in, this is another example of Nobunaga really not heeding a ton of tradition, right? And like then it. he does the crazy thing where he says, since you're a great fighter and you're already one of, you know, like my fighters, I'm going to give you the title Samurai. Now, Can I just like get that. No, you, you wouldn't think so. But like, again, like Nobunaga, he just does what he wants to do as he wants to do it. So this is the first recorded foreigner being awarded this title. 
I like it. Right? So like I'm I'm imagining like a <laughs> this is so silly, but you know when you become knighted and you get like you know the you kneel the one shoulder the one shoulder you rise you get the sword the whole bit like I'm imagining that but in full like Japanese like elegance and 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 gaudiness does that it ha that... there there's got they've got a ceremony <laughs> for how to make green tea like there's got That's, to yeah. be like a a perfect knighting ceremony that I just don't know about. But I'm I'm imagining one. It's it's fabulous. Um. So Yasuke is one of the few people who dine. So it's like that's obviously a thing. That and how close. Now let me see if I can share my screen because and for people playing at home, I will end up figuring out a way to share this so that you can see. Like I will share this like with our show stuff. Um. I want to show screen two. Um. There is. You see my screen? I do. Okay, so let me increase this size. There is a beautiful painted panel, and in the middle of it is what is said to be Nobunaga and Yasuke in the traditional like Japanese loincloth little things, like the things that sumo wrestlers wear, which right, right, right. And so they're they're fighting. I'm trying to narrate this for everyone else, and Yasuke is a profoundly darker person and you see all this now i learned something much to my chagrin about the loincloth that they're wearing <laughs> when when i was 16 and an exchange student in japan i went to a children's sumo event okay and <laughs> that loincloth and i i don't know the real word for it is really one long strip of fabric. That makes, that checks. That's kind of what it looks like. Okay. Now imagine you are a 16 year old girl and you are walking through this big event where there's, you know, a ton of people all getting ready for this and you see children with just that thing strung over their shoulder as they walk to get ready. I was Ooh. not prepared for the amount of human I saw, particularly under age, I was having a very tough time. Um, That's fair. Yeah. My uh, host family thought it was hilarious. They, you know, because they were just like, ah, whatever, look at you, you're funny. And I was just like, mortified. But, you know, these are things. So question that is totally unrelated to the story, but to sumo wrestling. <laughs> okay. Um, typically, because I know, I know nothing about sumo wrestling other than what we've seen in, you know, Western American pop culture, if you will. Um, they're generally very large individuals. Yeah. Are, is, are you, so is that like the, like you have to be large to be sumo, right? Like it's not, um, like you're not going to find a, a 6'2", 150 pound individual right like they're so, gonna be big guys okay so with the children what was interesting was because i was expecting a ton of rather rotund kids right the there yeah. were a lot of skinny kids and oh, okay. they're for the children size didn't necessarily beget your whether you won or not it was you know a lot of technique there and okay so there's that hold that in your mind then Knowing very little of what I know about, you know, adult sumo events with like professional sumo wrestling, I'm going to own that. I know very little. But strangely enough, one of my students when I went back and taught after college was the wife of a retired famous sumo wrestler. So I know enough to be dangerous and to make up additional detail and think that it's fact. So I'm going to own all of those <laughs> bias. And like, you know, people who, who do know, if you do know, tell me. Um, I'm, I'm anxious to learn. Like, I love learning. Um, but as you get, you know, into that professional realm, uh, I believe that girth helps. And so, like, the student of mine whose husband was a, a former sumo wrestler, he had his business was a um, chonconave uh, restaurant. And that is basically like a really fattening, like, soup thing. And that's a very common food for sumo wrestlers. You know, so they would eat a lot of food that would help uh, build up their girth. Huh. Okay. But 
but he himself mm -hmm. was in between what you think of as the standard stick figure Japanese individual and a sumo wrestler. You know, he was kind of a, a, a fun meld, and it's probably because you know he retired, so he didn't need that all that all that stuff. Hmm. Okay, you learn something new every day. Yeah, and it, you know, again, I I'm just highlighting my ignorance here, so I I know enough to be deadly. Um, <laughs> that's what makes it fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we go back to like Yasuke, one thing that that kind of came up is apparently he was not the only African serving minor lords in Japan in the recorded history. But the thing is, we don't know hardly anything about any of the others because they all served very minor lords. And we do know that Yasuke was the first. So kind of a, a, a record breaker there. So mind you, we were back in 1581. So now in 1582 on June 21st, um, Yasuke was with Nobunaga when Nobunaga was ambushed by his general, Akiche Mitsuhide. And kind of going- Not his brother. Not his brother. Okay. So Akechi is one of Nobunaga's generals and Akechi is kind of like a, he, he's, he's kind of a villain of history. So Akechi first is a samurai who serves a different uh, daimyo, but his daimyo dies. And so he ends up, so he, he, you know, you know, that Ronin where we get the, the, mm -hmm. the lone samurai, he joins Nobunaga's service and Nobunaga does this untraditional thing, go figure, where he promotes him up as to one of his generals. And this was crazy because traditionally you only counted among your top chosen people who've served your family for hundreds of years. You needed to know that they were ride or die for generations before you gave somebody this rank. That checks. Akechi doesn't have that because he's from a different area. He served a different Lord, but he was given that same level of responsibility and um, respect. I say respect. I probably ought not to because Akechi, there's a couple things about Akechi that gives him motive. First off, Nobunaga either killed his aunt or his mother. There's some discrepancy in records there. And Nobunaga had a history of insulting Akechi in public to his okay. face. So he has a death wish. Yeah, pretty much. Like Nobunaga just loves stirring the pot. You know, he just loves pissing Open with people. Yeah. And after a chunk of time, Akechi is just getting more and more riled up and just holding it in, holding it in, holding it in. Well, then Nobunaga says, hey, I'm going to hold up here in this temple and I'm going to say, Akechi, you need to go join another general for and fight the Mori clan. Akechi, you've got 13,000 troops. This other guy has, let me scroll through. I think, I think the other guy had like 5,000. Oh, 200. He had 200 men. He's like, I want you to take your 13,000, go to this buddy over here who has 200, and you guys can take out the Mori clan. It's going to be great. Nobunaga's held up in this temple. He's got 30 men with him. One of those men is Yasuke. Okay. And Akechi decides, I'm going to fight Nobunaga instead. Uh, now is my time. As one does. So he attacks the temple, and he sets it on fire. As one does. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go, right, <laughs> what better? And so Nobunaga, like, he starts fighting. He starts really trying to take people out. But then he realizes there's 30 of us and there's 13,000 outside. I'm going to die. So he heads down to the basement and he performs sabuku, you know, where you take the sword, mm -hmm. put yeah, it in your yeah. thing. Now, there was something else about Japanese uh, tradition regarding sabuku that I didn't know much about which was if you are in like a battle, you know, the person who has the head of the leader is really kind of like deemed the winner. And so Nobunaga didn't want to have his head fall into Akechi's hand. So there's, you know, again, 1500s, there's a lot of, you know, discrepancies in, in records, but they said that Yasuke is the one who took Nobunaga's head and went to run it to the dude who had 200 men for safekeeping to save it from the enemy. So this okay. is this is a huge 
maybe honor is not the right word, but responsibility. Right. So Yasuke's head. Yeah, you know, like you got to go take my head and like go run it to to my homeboy. Um, oh, it's actually Nobunaga's son. So the one with two hundred. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Yasuke escapes with Nobunaga's head, runs to Nobutata, and immediately Nobutata is like, "We got to go fight Akechi." I don't know if he did a quick math game and went 200 versus 13,000, but he said, let's, let's roll those dice. So, right. I mean, it's the death of your dad. I, it's pretty, I, I don't know if that's a decision I would make, but I wasn't there. It wasn't me. It's hard for me to say. So Yasuke dives into the second battle that morning. He's already fought to try to repel Akechi's men, but now he's fighting Akechi's men again, this time slightly mm-hmm. better with 200 men. But of course, Akechi wins, you know, because as, as the, the article calls it, a foregone conclusion. It's like, yeah, I've, I've played <laughs> risk enough that it, if you've got somebody rolling through with several tanks, you're, you're just going to have to keep taking hits. Um, so they believe that Yasuke was likely wounded on the battlefield. And the last records that we have are Yasuke being escorted by Akechi's troops to the Jesuit mission house. We've got nothing else after that. That's it. Um, oh, the Jesuits. But I mean, that's how he came to Japan, right? He came through an, a, Je- a Jesuit priest, and then he's right back to the mission. Now, Yasuke's life as a black samurai has inspired several books, um, movies, and and like there's even a cartoon anime series on Netflix, which I think is what Mike was referencing. That's about uh, Yasuke. It does kind of weave in a lot of. Um, fiction to kind of help give it you know enough stuff for anime um but then in 2019 Chaz, chadwick bozeman playing yasuke was announced for a film and then obviously he died in 2020 so we didn't really get to see that come into fruition but i think like that could have been absolutely incredible so i would have loved every minute of that oh my gosh he went from being the black panther to yasuke like a he was he was made for a role for those roles. I know. Like, yeah. Okay. I'm gonna go have a good cry now. I know. I know. So on that bummer, <laughs> what's your story? Oh, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, my story is not about Yasuke. <laughs> that would have been funny though if they were the same story. But I'm I'm currently still crushing on Yasuke. So give me a second. <clears throat> okay. So my story is about a woman um kind of to i don't know maybe to uh maybe to americans a lesser known woman but i think to the english people she's probably a thing um queen elizabeth no uh like an urban legend if you will oh so but before i can tell you about her i kind of set the stage because Things that she says later in life come to fruition. So, like a witch or um, a prophet? We'll get there. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, so Henry VIII um, and a woman, but not any of his wives or okay. mistresses. So she doesn't lose her head in this story. This this woman gets to keep her head. Um. Henry VIII ruled England from 1409 to 1547. He had six wives. Um, we're pretty solid on the whole Catherine of Aragon thing. And when he, he annulled his marriage to her, kind of brought about the English Reformation. Henry VIII ushered in the divine right of kings in England because why not? We've already pissed off the Pope. Let's have a good time and make mm-hmm. a big deal out of it. Um, two side notes that I thought were really interesting that I did not formally know was he actually saw the oversaw the acquisition of Wales to England and was the first English monarch to rule over Ireland as its king as opposed to being called the Lord of Ireland, which was following something called the Crown Act of Ireland in 1542. Um, I had to look that up because I've never heard of that before, and it is relevant, I promise. <laughs> 
the Crown Act is basically this. Um, Pope Alexander III claimed Ireland for the church in 1171. So we're going back several okay. hundred years. Um, doing so basically abolishes Ireland's ancient kingdom and power and kind of creates Ireland as like a like a property, like a like Guam is the U.S., like mm-hmm. a, you know. Um, so Ireland pays taxes to Rome. Ireland is ruled by Rome. But in the meantime, to have a person closer by, the English monarch is considered the Lord of Ireland. So he, like, watches Ireland and cares for Ireland for the Pope. So just to t- test my understanding, so when Henry VIII, like, starts having his, his beef with the Pope, it put his lordship over ireland in question or in jeopardy because if suddenly he's not aligned with the pope now ties to ireland are a bit more tenuous right so um and because we all know what uh kind of bougie fella henry the eighth is he decides in 1542 you know it's actually really not that big of a deal that the pope has ireland so i'm just gonna take it um and has parliament declare ireland his and his heirs for all time and the new styling is now the king of ireland the lord protector of ireland and no one else can take it and the pope's like well all right i guess then you're excommunicated a second time because you can get excommunicated more than once when you're the king of england i guess i mean it seems a bit like like you're doubling down on something that's not working right um However, while the Pope himself doesn't seem to have, like, uh, doesn't seem to throw a big fit about this, the rest of the monarchs in all of Europe do, because they don't want Ireland to be run by a Protestant ruler. Question. Are all of the monarchs at this time still related to each other? Or is that something yes. that happens later on? Okay, so this is... Yes. Okay. Which is part of the fun, because the Pope at the time... Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. I'll have to go back through and find it. But the Pope at the time is Catherine of Argonne's nephew. Okay, yeah. No, I... <laughs> so, yeah. So there's a lot of, like, well, he said, she said, my mom's mad at you. Um, go talk to her sister kind of stuff happening. And Cheryl's not making fudge for you this Christmas. Sorry about your luck. Yeah, Thanksgiving's going to be real awkward because you ticked all the aunties off. By the way, I really um, like the fact that we're talking of, like, you use the Thanksgiving in terms of, you know, the English, just because, like, yeah. we're really the reason that, or they're the reason we celebrate it. Thanks, England. <laughs> and and the Protestant Reformation, so there's that. I mean, that leads us all to Thanksgiving. <laughs> so the pope decides basically he's not from what i can tell and if there's somebody out there that has a more um clear understanding of this from what i can tell the pope just kind of puts it on the back burner and realizes he's got bigger fish to fry but the rest of european monarchies like yeah no we can't have a protestant ruler sitting on the irish throne this is not okay so they kind of set out to put the end of to this it doesn't work in their benefit ever but their goal is to put a catholic ruler back on the english throne mm-hmm. it takes some time a does it time. quote take some time because i feel <laughs> like we still haven't had that time ergo it takes some time because it only happened for a brief second when queen mary was the queen okay yeah no you're right you're right I forgot right. that, you know, she she warmed the, th- the throne up before Elizabeth took it. Elizabeth, yeah. Right. So all this to say, while it is not, um, di- all that information was not directly related to the story, it is kind of invaluable to the story because everything King Henry does is just one, like, one step away from burning the planet to the ground all the time like all the time and he has got beefs like there are people that have beefs with him everywhere however only one documented like uprising occurs in all of this in the north which is 
where our girl kicks in. Not in the uprising, but she is from the north, and her name is Ursula Suthkel. Have you heard of her? No. Okay, so. But like, okay, was her last name by birth or recorded in history afterward? Cause now so I don't know. Okay, because Suthkel, I'm like, dang. Yeah, so it's S-O-U, I guess it could be South South Heel, but it's S-O-U-T-H-E-L, and there's multiple spellings of this name. And here's the thing with her story. Um, everything from here on out has to be taken with, like, an entire bowl of salt. <laughs> because there's very few legitimate sources about her life, and even fewer about what she has to say. However, we know that she was born in 1488 in North Yorkshire, England, so she's roughly four years older than King Henry. <clears throat> the first known source of her story comes from a man named Richard Head in 1667, so almost 100 years after her death. This guy decides he needs to go and learn about this witch of York, if you will. He has this comment on her story, that it was strangely preserved amongst other writings belonging to an old monastery in Yorkshire. And now I publish it for the information of posterity. Okay, so he's plagiarizing somebody else's notes and taking all the credit. Yes. So before I found his, you can actually go online. I have the source. You can go online and read his whole writing of her. And it is... There is so much WTF in that story. Like, I, my brain exploded two days ago reading half of it. Like, what? Okay, like, did it, it did it explode because of his editorializing? Or did it explode just because of, like, this girl is lit? A little bit of both. Because she's such a phenomenal individual, they took great um, liberties in retelling her story. So to our knowledge, the two, the only things we know for sure is that supposedly, and I'm saying this for sure and supposedly at the same time, mm -hmm. but there's no written account of her life from her. On her deathbed, she is said to have spoken her life to a, a young lady named Joanna Walker who um, wrote it down. However, I can't find that document. I'm assuming that maybe that's what was strangely preserved in the monastery in Yorkshire, but I'm not sure. The only other, like, solid proofs we have of her is that during the uprising in the north, King Henry actually writes to the Duke of Norfolk, and he's, he asks about the Witch of York, like, whether she's been questioned or what does she have to say about this. Like, he's, he's inquiring after her, and so they believe that this is her, and this is why. So her mother was only 15 years old when she was born. But I feel and, like that's status quo for the time. Right. The only thing that's different about her mother than most women of the time is that she never told anybody who Ursula's father was. Oh. Even being brought before the magistrate, she still refused to give up the father's name. So the local townsfolk kind of... um ostracized her because they thought maybe she might be um, an adulteress or sleeping with the devil because she refuses to give up the name. You know, Richard, the, the devil's not where I'd go first. I'd be thinking it's the magistrate's kid and he's like, I don't know this woman. Well, you would think that, right? But <laughs> so, so Richard Head seems to believe it was most definitely the devil. And he writes some very descriptive, um, Accounts of Agatha's time in the company of the devil, disguised as a very handsome young man her age, that promises to give her the world. In one account, when she's called upon to the magistrate to answer to who the father is, um, Richard Head says that she calls upon a dragon to take her away, leaving the magistrate half dead with fear. I don't know if I'd stop with just, hey, I'm going to Uber this dragon out of here. You know, I'd be like, can, can you, like, take his I leg? Know. Something. Just just munch on an arm on your way out. Like, 
little snack, or no, 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 just a little bit. Yeah, I. But anyway, <laughs> needless to say, she ends up living a portion of her life in a cave called today Mother Shipton's Cave. Okay. Now, the really interesting thing about this cave is in this cave, there's a pond, and the pond has, due to its chemical makeup, I'm not exactly sure the science behind this, but you can put soft core sticks. Today, like, you can go to Mother Shipton's Cave and do this yourself if you want to do it. You can go take, like, a soft porous thing and put it in the water, and when you come back a couple of hours later, it will be hard. Like, I'm not going to say rock hard, but this cave has the very real abilities to turn things to stalactites. Okay. Very quickly. Um, so there is obviously some legend and lore around that, that like Agatha has the power to turn a man to stone and she chooses to raise her daughter in this cave. I mean, if we're talking about knockoffs of Medusa myths, I'm down. That's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh, so she has a Medusa pond. I like this. This works for right. me. Um, most accounts say that she was alone when she gave birth to Ursula, but there is some accounts that suggest that she maybe had a midwife or um, maybe some of the local ladies. Um, what we do know is both Agatha and Ursula were revered in the town, um, if not bullied and you know, spoken disrespectfully to the women cared for them. Like they would come to them for herbal remedies and things like that. Right. Because in 16th century medicine, it's either witchcraft or alchemy. Yeah, and, and they got to bleach so, it. Right. Right. So they are going, you know, the local townswomen are going to Agatha for like a balm for this rash I have on my left kneecap, whatever. Right. So there is some that suggest Agatha was not alone when she gave birth. But what's interesting about her labor story is that when Ursula was born, if she was born in the middle of this massive storm, <laughs> and as the thunder cracked and the rain came down, she comes out cackling instead of crying. And her cackles, <laughs> like, resound through the cave and basically stop the storm. Like, as in the storm is afraid of her. So, I mean, excuse me. if I, when, when kiddo was born, if that was the events that happened, like, if she started cackling, like, first off, I got a great cackle. <laughs> like, I can only imagine that coming out of a, a newborn. A newborn that was hideous. She was... Um, some stories say that her body was twisted and contorted. Um, most likely she was a hunchback and she had bulging eyes. Um, she was by no accounts beautiful in any standard realm. Okay, um, so this is going to aid into that this is the child of the devil. Exactly. Um, and they, in fact, they, the townsfolk call her the devil's bastard. Um, she had your quintessential crooked long nose mm. that witches today have, which makes me wonder if kind of that's where the idea came from, is what Mother Shipton looked like must be what witches look like. Um, but anyway, oh, also that pond in their, their, that pond in their cave that they live at by the, <laughs> by the beach because we're ostracized women in 1500s is skull-shaped. That's Oh, perfect. Yeah. 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 Um, so that, that adds to the whole bastard of the devil thing too so anyway agatha decides that she she doesn't want to live with the townsfolk and she's just going to raise her daughter by herself in this cave where the baby was born and we're just going to live quietly in the forest and keep to ourselves the townswomen can come to us whatever but we're not trying to be in the middle of it all mm. so this goes on for one account says two years, another account says only six months, but the other account was Richard Head's account, and he really, Hollywood, like, would love his stories. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure which account is accurate, but I'm going to go with about two years. At this point, the abbot of, like, Beverly Monastery, Beverly Church, decides that the cave is no place for a, chi for a child to live. And he arranges for Agatha to go to a nunnery and Ursula to be raised by a local family. How does mom feel about this? 
I could not find anything because I wondered the same thing. At this point, she's maybe 17 years old. And from everything I could tell, she was happy in the cave and happy with her daughter. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure times were tough and things were hard, but it didn't sound like she was trying to be alone. Mm. With, you know, it didn't sound like she was trying to be sent to a nunnery, but that is, in fact, what happens. Um, we never hear from Agatha again. Which is super sad, because I'm really curious about the rest of her story. Mm-hmm. Here's where Richard Head has, a, like, a really good time telling his story. Because either Agatha or Ursula, or both of them, would are said to have, have reacted to town ridicule by doing some humorous things, such as... Um, one account says Ursula was walking by to do, as a small child, she was doing an errand for her um, foster mother. And uh, one of the local townsmen called her the devil's bastard. And when she turned back around to look at him, he was wearing the chamber pot around his neck, like a toilet seat around his neck. And the like portions, other portions were like a hat. And then all of his friends immediately started laughing at him because you are now wearing the the toilet seat mm. <laughs> out of the hut. Um, like the, the the ruff of his neck was basically turned from a ruff to supposedly the toilet seat. Um, the owner of the home hears the laughing and cackling downstairs, so he comes to see what's up, but he can't get out the front door because now he's got ginormous horns, and he can't. Like, the horns won't go through the front door. So all of the friends are now laughing. All of the friends are cackling. And as soon as Ursula, a.k.a. Mother Shipton, is out of sight, it goes away. So there's, like, story after story of these accounts, but none of them end in any kind of travesty or heartache. It just seems like maybe we're having a little bit of fun. If they're going to have a little bit of fun, we're going to have a little bit of fun kind of thing. Okay. In the end, though, she does become a valuable member of her community as a herbalist, and she earns an income and respect. By the time she's in her early 20s, she does marry, which I thought was really interesting, given her physical description of being contorted and hunchback with bulging eyes. She does marry. She marries a man named Toby Shipton, and um, a lot of people believe that he she must have bewitched him to do so. However, <laughs> she continued, like, she she makes a great neighbor. There's a story where a neighbor comes to her and says that someone stole their smock and petticoat. And Ursula comforts her, gives her a snack, sends her on her way, says, I promise we'll have it back by morning. The next morning, the woman that stole the smock and this petticoat comes running out and singing and dancing about it, wearing all of these things on the outside of her clothes. Dances up to Mother Shipton and this neighbor lady, takes them off, gives them back, announces that she stole it, curtsies, and leaves. That is, um... Right? So, like, if you're going to vilify this woman and make her a witch, it sounds like she's not doing, like, the worst things, but... No, I mean, making fun of people who are making fun of her and uh, getting things returned back in musical forms. Yeah, like, I, when I read that, I, I cackled, like, okay, I like what, what we're doing here, Mother Shipton. You sound yeah. like a real stand-up lady. So, anyways, so she, at this point, she starts to make, um, a handful of prophecies. So now the town is coming to her asking for, like, foresight. Like, who, when will I marry? Who will I marry? Um, Mother Shipton says what she says. She tries to always give them an answer they want, and they pay her, you know, whatever the fee, whatever the local small fee is, and they go on. Her husband doesn't live more than a few years before he dies, and she decides, because now the town folk are assuming that not only did she bewitch her husband, but she must have t- been involved in his death as well, she's going to move back to her cave. That she was born. Okay. She spent the first couple years of her life in. So she moves back to her cave. (laughs) And then she starts to give local prophecies. And I'm going to read one of the prophecies to you because I think it's really interesting. 
She says, Water shall come over the Osa bridge, and a windmill shall be set upon a tower, and an elm tree shall line every man's door. The River Osa runs next to York. The bridge over the river was called the Osa Bridge. The town people, they didn't really care about her prophecies at this point, um, other than who am I going to marry, what am I going to marry, am I going to have 27 children, those types of things that you play the cootie catcher game with. Yep. Um, <laughs> they didn't really care until they got water piped in over the bridge from a windmill that went to every door via the pipes were made out of elm trees. And then they were like, oh, geez. Oh, she might be on to something. Um, she made at least one other prediction regarding a town um, about a storm coming in and destroying the the church and how a portion of the church will be used to be to rebuild the bridge. And that did, in fact, happen. The, the top of the steeple was used as the foundation of the bridge after the storm came through and tore through it. So I thought that was worth mentioning. I don't know if maybe she's just really good at Farmer's Almanac. Um, <laughs> but there you have it. So um, enter stage right, Cardinal Wolseley appearing. Oh, crap. And Anne Boleyn. Yep. Our boy, the villain of all time, Colonel Wolseley, is um, a bit concerned. Um, you know, Henry VIII's got him on this war path to make sure that he can divorce Catherine of Aragon so he can marry Anne Boleyn, all the while doing all the other things that Cardinal Wolsey does, which my understanding is, like, he was just as powerful as the king, if not more so, um, because he's got, he's the mouthpiece of God, right? Right. Um, so she... She gives this prophecy. When the cow doth ride the bull, then priests beware the skull. And when the lower shrubs do fall, the great trees quickly follow shall. The mitted peacock's lofty cry shall to his master be a guide. And one great court to pass shall bring what was never done by any king. The poor shall grieve to see that day, and who did feast must fast and pray. Fate so decreed their overthrow, riches brought pride and pride brought whoa so the peacock is wolseley okay and um my understanding is that supposedly the church is supposed to be the pride um finding pining for their riches and and bring brought to ruin by henry VIII's actions um supposedly the cow and the bull are supposed to represent Henry and Anne. One source says that Mother Shifton would not give a direct name to the people that she was prophesizing about, but rather their heralding. Um, her her, her heralding? Am I saying that? Right? I mean, honestly, like, I don't have to worry about a family crest because of, you know, my, my peasantry. So we're good. Right. So, so she, so supposedly that's what she used to describe each person. Um, Wolseley gets the peacock because he's the peacock. <laughs> mm, I mean, yeah, this checks. <laughs> there's, there's really one source talked about it being like um, the mitered peacock's lofty cry shall fail to his master's guide as being like because Wolseley rose through the ranks as a, from a poor man to being a cardinal. Um, so my martyr, uh, mitered and peacocked and all that jazz. But I honestly, when I read that, my first thought was Wolseley's the peacock. Like, there's no question in my mind about that. Um, I don't, I don't really know about Henry Nan being considered the bull and the cow. I mean, I, I've listened and read a lot about Anne Boleyn and I think she probably was pretty bullish, um, but for all the right reasons, if that makes sense. But um, it's a woman in, well, it's a woman. I'm not even going to say the time just because. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that really is supposed to check and make it actually, like, really, truly related to them. But the fact that she says, like, the king shall do something that's never been done before um, the poor shall grieve the day. Like, all of these things really were what came out of that, out of Anne Boleyn and, and Henry's marriage. 
um, later, do, 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 trying to get to the bottom here. So she, <laughs> she supposedly goes on to say a lot of other things, like she predicts the internet and telephones and satellites and planes um, among about a million other things that supposedly she said. However, a huge portion, I would say probably 90% of what she supposedly said has come out to be totally falsified. It was written by a gentleman in the Victorian age to drum up like he was just looking for fun. Mm-hmm. So he thought he would use the story of Mother Shipton to say, she said all these things, and we're just going to have, we, we just have to listen, like, the world's going to end at this day, and Mother, because Mother Shipton said so, and you know what Mother Shipton said about Henry and Boleyn, like, y'all have to listen. Most of those accounts have been totally, like, proven to be false, and she didn't say them. They cannot confirm what she said about Henry VIII being false. Or what she said about the things happening in her local town. But what I do think is interesting is that Henry VIII does write a write in reference to the Witch of York asking what she's prophesizing about. And then later in 1666, the diarist Samuel Pepys is surveying the damage done to London during the Great Fire. And supposedly while surveying the damage in the company of the royal family, he overheard them discussing Mother Shipton's prophecy of the event. And that's it. Like, mm. we are not told anything else. I tried to find what she had to say about the Great Fire in London, and if anybody out there has it, I would love to see it, because I looked and looked and looked and can't find it, and I'm just wondering if I'm looking in all the wrong places. <laughs> Um, it's possible it's at the end of Richard Head's book, but um, like I said, everything he wrote was so romanticized and so over the top that it's really hard to take out the truth of what he was right. trying to say. Um, needless to say, the fact that there are so many people that believe in her and believe her stories, I think is really fun. Um, I want to know, though, do you think that she was really out there predicting the end of the Catholic Church in England? You know, I don't. And perhaps I'm a bit of a naysayer here. But like when you look at Nostradamus or, you know, really any of the anybody prophet, you know, prophesying, we only hear about the times they got it right. right. We don't hear like, OK, look, Angie said a dozen things. And to date, five of them happened, which means she's got bigger failure rate than success rate. But if I only say, Angie said I would stub my toe today and I stub my toe. Like now she's right. Yeah. Now I, I get confirmation bias and I start thinking like, well, okay, these are all the things that Angie said. Angie said great things. Of course I'm going to do all these things. Like I'm going to make the best bread ever later today because Angie said. You are going to make the best bread ever. I don't. <laughs> I, I doubt that because I made bread yesterday and it was not the best. Like I did a different <laughs> recipe and it was it was not my favorite. I mean, it wasn't bad. I'm still going to eat it, but it, it was not as good as the previous loaf. Um, These are things. But like, you know, like that's the thing. And so you look at like Nostradamus, like, oh, my gosh, he predicted like all these things. And in hindsight, we can say, I wonder if blank equals this thing I'm looking at right now. And he predicted it. It's like we're twisting it. It's just like going to a psychic. You know, they say a yep. ton of things. We only take the generic bizarre things that they're saying and applying it to what's happening in real life and then say oh my gosh they're absolutely right and we ignore or exclude everything that doesn't line up yes okay so that's exactly what i think um i do i 100 percent agree with that because what i read like what she had to say about the catholic church and the royal family i thought to myself like well you can look back and read that and kind of apply it to anything mm -hmm. like any travesty to have happened in the last 500 years that can be applied to there's a peacock in every story and the pride <laughs> the pride falls in every story so yeah. but it is interesting what i do find interesting specifically because it is henry the eighth and how 
how set on what he believed to be accurate he was to be inquiring after what she said. I mean, I find that interesting. To me, it seems it seems par for the course. Again, I don't know Henry VIII, like, but I've seen tons of documentaries. I have seen both the Tudors and like, you know what I mean? Like, so I feel like I'm an educated opinion here. That's like the worst way to set it up. But like, I feel like I have an understanding of who he was as a human. Yeah. And if you get, if you're doing all of these crazy things and you're being so out there, like to be like, okay, case in point, if you post an Instagram picture and you get a hundred comments on there and all of them are glowing and amazing. And there's one that just says, this sucks. You don't think about the hundred good comments. You fixate on the, this sucks. So Henry VIII, yeah. he's got this huge group of people who are all like, of course. Yeah, of course. You know what? You should, you should annul your marriage. Of course it's illegal. You don't want to be married. You shouldn't be, but I'm going to say what I need to say to stay in your good graces. And to stay alive. I would like to stay alive. I, yeah, please. And thank you. <laughs> um, and then you hear about some peasant woman saying he's a dick. I mean, that that was my great takeaway, like, just saying it like it is, this is what it looks like. Um, and I'm I mean, also, yeah, I'm going uh, it, to, it's just a bull. What, what you choose to add on to that imagery is up to you. I'm just saying when the cow rides the bull, what, what do you think it means? Like, mm-hmm. I think the whole thing, when I read about her, I was like, no way. Like, this... <laughs> No way. But at the same time, I love her story. I love knowing that she lived in a cave. I love knowing that she had enough pull in whatever she said to bend the king's ear. Um, and that she is exactly what we think of as a witch. Mm. Um, she's a witch. <laughs> That's all it Dude. <laughs> well, thanks for the Monty Python reference there. That's fantastic. <laughs> This is all I could think of as I was reading it the whole time. I was like, hmm, I wonder if she floats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she shouldn't float in her pond too long. No, it, I'm sure she has calluses. Yeah, I wonder what that would do to human flesh. So legend has it, there was a really minor story in there that supposedly... Um, a king came through with his men and asked for like a reading from her and they didn't answer her question correctly. I might be getting this wrong because it was such a minor like detail. Um, as far as information goes, like there wasn't a lot about it, yeah. but uh, she, like they didn't answer her question the right way. So, so she turned them all to stone via the pond. Um, however, I did not include that in the main part of my story because it doesn't like timeline doesn't check out yeah like um, some king versus like there's one dude it, yeah so it made it, the story made it sound like it was this ancient king from like a thousand years ago and his men traveling through and they happened upon mother shipton in her cave but i'm like well we know mother shipton's birthday so now are you applying that she's a thousand year old witch too like i'm a little bit confused about that so because it didn't like fit with what we actually know to be like the birth and death dates mm. of at least this woman whether she was a witch or a prophetess is really up to whoever's hearing the story to believe um we know she existed we know she was married we know whatever but it just it didn't check out with her timeline so maybe like other witches lived in the cave for the last, i mean it could be a great place to hang you know like how many I skull-shaped mean, caves Right. And, and how, how many times do you go through your week just thinking, oh my gosh, could I just be alone for a minute? Can I just turn this jerk into stone? Like for the love. Right. Right. Like, so I'm just thinking she, she probably loved her cave and maybe so did a hundred other women before her. But after her, it became a local landmark and now it's a tourist attraction. <laughs> I think you just said something strangely prophetic. She just loved her cave. And so did a hundred women before her. <laughs> and Satan. Don't, don't forget about it. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we've got to include him. Mm, yes. 
I'm going to send you, okay, so I have so many sources, I can't even name them all, because I was just, like, so what about some of the things that I read. Um, You have to read at least the first two chapters, or the first two paragraphs, or whatever they are, of Richard Head's book about her life, written in 1666. That sounds delightful. What he's, like, it's just... I don't have words. I'm still confused. <laughs> okay. I have questions. I have questions. Uh, when you read it, let me know, and I'll ask you my question. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm just going to go save. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to tell Ian, who just, like, heard part of the story yesterday, and he was like, yeah, that checks. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, par for the course. <laughs> Thanks, babe. <laughs> well, I love it. Yeah. Well, is this a good place to, to end things? I'm good if you're good. Okay. Well, um, I say that. It's possible now... my iPad ended it like an hour ago because. Um, oh, don't say that. I'm kidding. It's still recording. Okay. We're good. I was a little afraid when it goes dark if it, it would stop recording. So I've been like pushing it. <laughs> well, on that note, if you've enjoyed listening, subscribe, like, share. Pass this on to everybody else who's into the same kind of unhinged history that apparently you are. And uh, follow us on... Freaks. I get right. Uh, <laughs> follow us on social media. We're on um, Instagram and TikTok at unhinged.history. And on Twitter at unhingedhistory. And history spelt with a zero. Ooh. And then if you have like things that you want to send to us, like ways that we've messed up and you want to correct our timeline, please go and do so. We are at unhinged.historypod at gmail.